Hi, this is Dan Klein. Today we're speaking with Scott Dryley, who's an assistant professor at the Air Force Institute of Technology in Dayton, Ohio. He's written a remarkable paper on Adam Smith's discussion of schooling, as well as the secondary literature on Smith on schooling, the secondary literature going back to the end of the 19th century. Scott, how are you? Uh, very good. Thank you very much. I'm uh, glad to uh, have the opportunity to discuss this. Um, as you know, this is uh, a bit of a labor of love for me. How about first telling us very briefly, broadly, what you're up to? And then we'll turn quickly just to ask you more about yourself. Yeah, sure. So um, I've had uh, two recent articles published. Uh, one is uh, looking to to characterize Smith's relationship to government in the sphere of schooling, uh, specifically schooling for youth or schooling for the poor, people who may not have uh, wide access to it uh, through their own funds. And then through that, I came to be a very, very suspicious of the literature that was out there. And then I focused on really doing something a real substantive review of the literature to try to understand what the prevailing themes are, how people have read this over the last, um, you know, 130 years uh, since what in this era of what I call professional scholarship, and then uh, try to come to terms with my reading, which is a bit different than most, it seems, and, and try to come to terms with, with you know, deconflict them, I guess. Okay. Um, we'll, we'll look forward to digging into that. Can you tell, tell us, tell everyone about your background, uh, and your prior work on this topic? Yeah, sure. So, um, presently, uh, you mentioned I'm an associate or assistant professor, sorry, at, uh, the Air Force Institute of Technology. That is, I'm, I'm actually an active duty officer in the Air Force, and, um, I have this wonderful opportunity to teach here. This is our you know, people know of our Air Force Academy out at Colorado Springs. All the services have an undergraduate school. This is one of our graduate schools, uh, specifically our graduate school for engineering and engineering management. But prior to this, this career in the Air Force, I was a public school teacher. Uh, so I was, I was trained. I uh, did a master's in education. Um, you know, I felt I, I was really committed to the idea of public education. Um, as you'll probably guess as we go through here, I've become uh, less committed to that as a concept. But you know, that aside, I, uh, I'm very interested in education issues, education economics. And um, you know, I, I, I find education to be very important as, as many of the people I will be discussing about also do. And and so that, that's a bit of my background. Uh, I taught for a number of years, eventually made this career shift to the Air Force. And uh, it's been very rewarding. And then uh, along in the Air Force, they gave me an opportunity to work on, uh, on a PhD, which I, which I seized and has been wonderful ever since. Okay. I think listeners should know that you did your dissertation with me at GMU. Uh, the dissertation was devoted to this topic. Um, 
All right. Well, tell us tell us more about Smith. What he says. Perhaps I don't know where you want to start. What he what he what he what you make of what Smith says before perhaps turning to what people say about what Smith says. Um. Well, let me give you a little. I'll, I'll give you a little context here. Um, and, and that is, so a lot of people talk about Smith and education, uh, but it generally follows in these different patterns here, which is um, a lot of people look at his where it fits into his moral development. And that's really the theory of moral sentiment stuff. And, you know, like Jack Russell Weinstein, or Weinstein, I'm sorry, I don't know how he pronounces it actually, has done, committed a whole book to that topic, uh, moral development. And um, that attracts a lot of people. Uh, another one is people focus on the potential benefits of wider access to liberal education, you know, the three R's, so to say. And, um, a lot of people focus on that. Now, there's the third topic is the one that interests me, and that is the role for government in providing uh, liberal education. And this one, I won't say is necessarily uh, rich in research, but there's a lot of commentary on it. Um, and I just wanted to give you a sense <clears throat> of what that commentary looks like before I sort of tell you my, my perspective on things. Um, so, for example, Mike Hill and Warren Montag put together a nice, a nice book in 2015. In, in there, they write, what Smith has in mind here is nothing less than public education. Uh, another example, Ryan Hanley, another great scholar. These are all great scholars. Um, Smith makes clearly precisely what he has in mind, an expansive and unprecedented proposal for public education at state expense. And I'll give you one more here. Gertrude Himmelfarb, uh, recently deceased. She's written some, some wonderful works as well. Uh, he urged the establishment of a state-administered, state-supported, state-enforced system of education with only token fees to be paid by the parents. He now advanced a scheme requiring a greater measurement of government involvement than anything that had ever existed before. Now, the, the, the views vary. They're not so committed to um, Smith being a, a, a staunch advocate of our exact public education system today. Uh, but what I do see is a, a large number of people agreeing government plays a vital, if not, you know, if not signif significant role um, for Smith in providing access to liberal education. So uh, my problem was that the text didn't speak to me that way. It really didn't. And um, that really stems from some awareness of the history. And I think maybe it's because of my own background as, as a teacher. I had read a bit about, um, about the history of education. And so some things about the text didn't sit with me that way. And so if you don't mind, I, I, just to sure. kind of give some sense, I'll, I'll, I'll talk about some of these suspicions and where they come from, then you'll kind of understand why my hypothesis is, is you know, differs from those three I just gave you. Um, and the first is uh, charity schooling. There's a thing called charity schools uh, that seems to be lost in a lot of histories, uh, but they were, they, pre they predominated at the time and they were well thought of as uh, ways for the poor to get education. 
Uh, they were also criticized by those who felt maybe the poor shouldn't even have education. And you can see that from Locke and Mandeville onward. There were very many people we study in the history of economic thought or history of thought who uh, were very sour in the idea of the, of the poor having education. But nonetheless, those who, who felt it, it was a good project thought highly of these. There were a great many of them, a lot of documentation on this. So just to give you some idea here, here's a quote early in the 18th century. Charity schools demonstrated the greatest instances of public spirit the age has produced. They were the glory of the age. All right. Uh, and we do have, because education was such a, an interesting topic for so many, there, there are lots of um, uh, surveys, a, a lot of good just primary data sources about the extent of charity schools. Uh, to give you some perspective, I mean, education was it was a hot topic, right? So we think of that era, the, the uh, age of the industrial revolution, the age of constitutions. It was also the age of schooling. You're talking era, about the 17 somethings. Yeah. Yeah. Throughout the whole century, you know, it's sort of that okay. same era where we attribute, you know, this, this massive change in politics and society, uh, education was part of that. All right. And so mm -hmm. like this, I love this quote from David Williams who says, education, this is 1789. So right around, the time we're talking about for, for Adam Smith, um, education has been so much the subject of disquisition and it must ever be an object of anxious attention. Education like morality is an inexhaustible fountain of good and evil on which the eye may ever dwell. And so this sort of sets the stage here that when Smith comes around and starts talking about how we can give access to education. There was a lot of discourse on the topic already. And charity schools were part of that. Uh, they uh, abounded, there's a word that describes it, they abounded. And my, my primary research suggests indeed, you know, I'm gonna throw around numbers here because it's hard to contextualize numbers, but, but uh, charity schools went from coast to coast on the island of, of, of Britain. Um, and okay. so this is the thing. If there's a system in place, you have to make an entirely different argument if you're just suggesting government gets involved. You now have to suggest that government is superior to some status quo. And I never saw that argument in Smith. You know, I, I equate it to this. So you, you try to persuade a friend to walk to the store with you. Now, if that friend is sitting on a bike and has a bike sitting there ready for you, your means of persuasion is going to be different than if you're just saying, let's go to walk to the store. Okay. The bike is charity in this situation. Um, it had momentum. It was sort of the means to do things. So uh, that made me very uncomfortable, not seeing a case against charity. And, and then there were other things. And I, and I think it's important to give a little bit of this history um, you know, my dissertation is, is full of the history here, and I think that that sets the stage in that there was a tax-based solution in Scotland at the time, uh, part user fees, part tax revenue. And people reference this all the time as the model that Smith had in mind. Uh, but the reality was that system was a mess, and his audience would have known it was a mess. So we can get into that if, if, you, if you're curious. Um, but it would not have resonated as a success story. Uh, if you can think of any sort of story today where you see 
sort of virtue signaling where you're saying, let's do this, and it's not really a substantive plan. I would say the parish system in Scotland was virtue signaling of the 18th century, okay? And uh, his audience would have known that. All right, and then a few other things here. Um, people were uh, advocating strongly for the, the, the children of the poor to have education. Uh, none of them were looking to government. In fact, they were very resistant to the idea of government getting involved. Uh, there was a, a status quo that they felt was sufficient. Okay, so where's the motive? Where's the motive for Smith here? Where's the, the failure? And uh, so there's, there's, there's stuff like that. And then, you know, when I look at the literature, this is what I would see over and over again. I would see claims that Smith's writing on this was contradictory. It was awkward. It was vague, muddled. There are all these claims that he didn't write very well on this particular topic, which always struck me as strange because, uh, you know, you know, I don't think it's, I'm, I'm not alone in thinking that, that Smith is, is a, a very, very good writer, <laughs> very disciplined, if nothing else, very disciplined. I would also say poetic and, and, and was very sec successful for, for his rhetoric. But it's hard to portray him as, as confused on matters. And a lot of the literature would, would pick some quotes and look at the rest as confused. You know, I compare how people were commenting on the quality of his writing, and I compare that to his initial readers and how they responded to the particular text in question here, his writing on education. So here's Reverend Samuel Parr in 1785. He is um, the first commentator on this article that I can find. So this is how he describes the article. He says it has clear and extensive views from copious and exact information. Sounds very nice, right? Sounds like it's well-received. Here is, uh, is it J.B. Say, John Baptiste Say from Say's Law, all the economists know him, right? 1803. He writes of this particular topic, it is a high, highly ingenious disquisition, replete as it is with the erudition and the soundest philosophy at the same time that it abounds with valuable instruction. Again, well-received, no sense of it being problematic. Now here's another one. This is his French translator in 1802, Germain Garnier, all right? And he's written this, it actually is in front of a great number of editions uh, as the footnote, not footnote, sort of the, the prelude, I guess you call it. He says, and I'm going to tilt my hand a little bit here, Smith proved tax subsidization to be problematic. And he did so, some of those are my paraphrase words, but Germain used the words proved. And then this is where the exact quote comes up again. He confirmed theoretical opinions with incontestable examples to show that tax subsidization was problematic. So, um, he wasn't initially received as confused on this matter or vague or ambiguous. Now, it's not to say these, these earlier readers are correct, you know, uh, but um, they received the text differently. And so I was compelled to try to understand what they were seeing, what they were reading that readers since 1890 
and I'll go back that far, readers since 1890 were not seeing, okay? So um, that really is the motivation for my study. Again, to understand how we should characterize his views to government and then the um, really figure out how people have been reading this. All right. The richness of the background, both the institutional history, like the charity schools and the parish system, um, greatly inform your work, as well as all of this reading of the readers through history of the text. But let's, let's get more now to the text. So am I right that, I mean, I mean, look, I, I know this text pretty well myself, um, and I'm very sympathetic, of course, to your to your general um, interpretations. I think there is more of a drift to it, as you suggest. On the other hand, there is, I think, sort of there are quotes to be sure for people with a eye for more active government and schooling to utilize. But you make the point that. Um, <clears throat> The first three quarters of this lengthy article, he's got these, he's got sections of this very long chapter uh, broken down into articles, and this is article two, um, that, that about three, the first three quarters of this article on the schooling of youth really does t tend towards um, showing that private education works better and that government involvement has generally been detrimental throughout history. Is that right? Uh, indeed. Uh, if you focus on just the last quarter, of, literally it's three quarters of the text that is, as you, as you say, if you focus on the last quarter, um, it's its own little piece. It's a strange pivot there at three quarters mark. And um, if you stop before that, you would never conclude there's nothing in there to make you think that Smith is at all entertaining the idea of government. In fact, he's, and we'll get into the tone of it. It is so highly critical. Um, you would say his, his uh, doubt of government on this matter is, is being, I'm going to mix the language here. It's beyond a reasonable doubt. All right. He, he reaches what at the time you'd say is something like a moral certainty that government shouldn't get involved. Right. Now, people have uh, responded to this by either not addressing this, this part or not, not even trying to resolve these uh, points. Um, and others have come up with something that I think is artful and interesting, I think, and sufficient. Um, and we'll talk about that. But it is, you know, it's, I'm going to use an analogy here and hopefully one that doesn't get me in trouble. Uh, but we can all probably recall in 2016 when James Comey did that public uh, press conference when he outlined all the sort of transgressions that Hillary Clinton had done, you know, with her servers. And then he quickly pivoted and said, but nobody would ever prosecute this. End of story. And depending on your politics, you're like, yeah, OK. Or you were like, what? What just happened? And there is a point in this article where he pivots to entertaining the idea of government. And that's our, that's that's um, <clears throat> paragraph fifty. That's sort of the critical point where, yes, as you say, um, there's sort of there's a there's a real obvious shift here, 
uh, and then what happens in this final quarter is fascinating. Of course, uh, we should tell the readers something very, very important, uh, or the listeners rather, that the article is not Smith's only word on the topic. topic. Uh, there is also the paragraph on page 815 in the conclusion of the chapter where he goes back over all of the articles and makes summary remarks. And what appears on page 815, paragraph five, is vitally important. But before we get to that, so we're back in the article and the pivot point is paragraph 50. So just before paragraph 50, there is something I wanna ask you to treat. And that's paragraph 15. I think this paragraph is probably the source of people sometimes saying that Smith favored compulsory education. Yeah, you know, I, I think the issue of compulsory is somewhat tangent to my concern here, but if you are equating Smith with anything resembling today's public school, then, you know, there's a compulsion involved with that. So, yeah, there is that, that bit here. Um, so the exact quote, I'm looking at, it's a large paragraph. Uh, yeah, yeah he says, so I'm gonna give you another quote along these lines, but this is the one you're, you're thinking about here. Force and restraint may no doubt be in some degree requisite in order to oblige children or very young boys to attend those parts of education which it is thought necessary for them to acquire. Yeah, but then after the age of 12 or 13, provided the master does duty, force and restraint can scarce ever be necessary. So yeah, they, you know, I, a good portion of the commentators find that the compulsion or the requirement to attend goes hand in hand with a, a government role here. Uh, of course, if you contextualize it in this paragraph, what he's really doing is saying that, you know, young kids are not always the most disciplined and much like a teacher would, you know, say you need to do this and this, you know, it's, it's, sort of an internal uh, compulsion. You know, you have to do this to, to get a grade. You've got to, um, you got, yeah, you, got, yeah. you got to attend the class. Yeah, yeah. Like, like that's the way I read this paragraph. He's talking about, the paragraph begins, the discipline of colleges and universities is in general contrived, not for the benefit of the students, but for the interest or more properly speaking, for the ease of the masters. And I think that this paragraph is just saying, I mean, the way I'm not sure, but I think all he means by the passage you just read is that young kids, for young, for young students, attendance, if you're the master of a class or maybe the, you know, provost of a university, you should say attendance is required. Like you have to come to class. Yeah, that's how I see it. If you look at the first 17 paragraphs, the theme of all of this is to establish how poor the schools are. I'm sorry, how uh, poorly they poorly, uh, how terrible the teachers are. I mean, this is really the theme of the first 17 paragraphs. 
And then, of course, because teachers are terrible, you've got students who are undisciplined. And because the management of the schools is so inept, this just keeps perpetuating on and on. And so it's just part of that discussion of, yeah, you could, you're going to have to force kids <clears throat> as a teacher because they don't want to be there because you're so bad. Force just meaning like requiring attendance yeah. and disciplining them. Yeah. 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 It's just a sort of it. And indeed the, you know, there was a certain brutality that occurred in public institutions at the time, you know, it was not yeah. a, Touching. Although I don't think he discusses any kind of corporal punishment, yeah. like smacking no. people with a ruler or anything like that. No, no, nothing like that. All right. I just wanted to touch on 15 because while your main topic is about government funding, the issue of compuls compulsory education, of compelling attendance to some school, if not to the public schools, um, does always come up. And, and quite a few scholars have said that Smith endorses compulsion in that way, which I, which I don't see at all. No. So there is a part of this, art, of this uh, article, um, which is his, you could call his policy paragraphs, there's you know, three or four of them. And that's where you would expect something dramatic, like you know, compulsory attendance to be. You would not be dropped in, in the middle of this paragraph, along the way, where he's really just criticizing schools. This is just yeah. such a strange place to put it. Now, if you're just picking quotes here and there, you just see it all by itself, you go, voila. Um, but you've got to look at, at this whole context. Yeah. And, and that is, you know, I, I think there are very important sections of this article that he uh, delineates, it, yeah. not with any you know, breaks or anything or, or titles, but that are very important for understanding the whole flow and this whole purpose. Yeah. The structure of it. Yeah. And, and um, so before we get to, <clears throat> before we get to what I think you mean is the policy paragraph, which is 54, which lays out the, I, the possible ideas of facilitate, encourage, impose. Let's go back and look and just say a little bit more about the pivotal paragraph 50 so do you want to just tell the readers a little bit about what happens in 50? It's probably, it's one of the most famous moments in the whole work, I would say. Yeah. The whole wealth of nations. Well, can I, I'm actually going to back up two paragraphs. Sure. All right. Cause 48 is really where it begins, where he pivots. So he's just made his case and we'll go back and look at how he, you know, concludes. I would say, Every, you know, leading up to 48 is his real conclusion of what was a study uh, with a hypothesis and an analysis of the data. And there he concludes it. And then there's this question, ought the public therefore to give no attention, it may be asked, to the education yeah. of the people? <clears throat> so he realizes at that point, he's made such a strong case against government getting involved that he says, well, does that mean nothing can be done? So then he, this is magnificent, really, because now he's exploring, okay, I mean, there's, there's, there are some rough circumstances right now. So it, it, it's the natural response to what, the natural response to what I've said, if you are a caring person, a warm-hearted person is, really? We should sit back and do nothing? And so he entertains that. Um, and so in 50 now, is really rhetorically powerful stuff, all right? And um, 
it's hard to pick just one sentence here. I think, um, yeah, so he's describing <clears throat> the state of the poor. And uh, one sentence uh, on page 782, the poor worker naturally loses, therefore, the habit of such exertion and generally becomes as stupid and as ignorant as it is possible for a human creature to become. The torpor of his mind renders him not only incapable of relishing or bearing a part in any rational conversation, but of conceiving any generous, noble, or tender sentiment, and consequently of forming any just judgment concerning many, even of the ordinary duties of private life. And it goes on like this. I mean, it's, it's powerful stuff. Yeah. Um, Incidentally, you just read the word sentiment. And that's one of the only two times that the word sentiment appears in the entirety of the wealth of nations. Yeah. And so you can see, oh, you know, we, you look at the theory of moral sentiments, which is a, a magnificent work. And, um, and you can start to say, ah, oh, well, let's impose his massive concerns for moral development onto this and say that it is such so important to him that he would do anything to ensure they can uh, immediately now, henceforth on, let's change society to ensure that this generation right now can engage in moral reflection and sentiment. Yeah. Um, Do you want to read the last couple sentences or lines of the paragraph just to, just to complete like the case for the other side, as it were? Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't try to hide any of this. It's, it's great stuff. Um, his dexterity, he's still talking about the laborer here, uh, at his own particular trade seems in this manner to be acquired at the expense of his intellectual, social, and uh, martial virtues. But in every improved and civilized society, this is the state into which the laboring poor, that is the great body of the people, must necessarily fall unless government takes some pains to prevent it. That's pretty powerful stuff. And you can imagine as a, a single quote, and there's a few other quotes in what I call the policy paragraphs that says government's got to take action. Now, it's important to point out, what does he say government should do here? Uh, government should take some pains. Okay. That's pretty vague. Now, I'm not, I'm not hiding behind some... Um, literal, you know, insisting upon some literal reading here. But um, you'll see here, if you read and start looking at sort of vague terminology, he turns to that phrase over and over from here on out, take some pains. He also uses another phrase repeatedly. He says government or the public should attend to this dire situation, attend to it, give some attention. Yep. Uh, again, I think it's noteworthy that he is vague as to what those actions should be. Now, um, I inform what I think he means by that in, in my own reading, uh, and but maybe we just leave it at that there, sort of as a... Um, I mean, basically, you, you, you give a lot of uh, <clears throat> awareness to the public being the people at large, society at large, and charity schools and other such non-governmental 
alternatives being other forms of attention and taking of pains. Is that right? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And I, so I, I guess that's a good segue to paragraph um, 54 and 55, which I call his the beginning of what might be his prescription. He, he, there's another word here along the lines of using vague language, which is really important. <clears throat> and I'm not going to insist that you buy into it right up front. But listen, he writes, this is what he says. The public can facilitate this acquisition. Um, I'm sorry, that's 55. But anyway, so he starts off for a very small expense. The okay. public yeah, can facilitate, ahead. can encourage, and can even impose upon the whole body of people the necessity of acquiring those most essential, the most essential part of education. So the public can facilitate. Now, take note here. He says the public he doesn't say the government or the state. Now, I'm, I'm not saying that he doesn't mean the public and the state can get involved, but he's using a different term here. And when we look at Smith's use of the word public throughout Wealth of Nations, he does tend to favor using it in the sort of Habermasian sense, you know, regardless of what you think of Habermas's view of, of the public and his whole history. I think he nails it right on uh, in this time period, which is, the public had a sense of sort of the owner of an opinion, a voice within a society, uh, independent people operating outside of a government entity. And so what does Smith mean here? He could mean the public as a sort of a proxy for the state, or he could mean uh, people can come together through charity or some other means to make this happen. Or public could subsume both, the, the yeah. government and the wider efforts and opinion and so on. Yeah, and I, I think it does subsume both. I, I think when you look at the alternatives he discusses, this is a topic sentence to discuss two paths forward, one being the government. This is just a, a say the public should do something. Here's a government option. Here is a sort of a, a private people option through societies and organizations. And so what I do find interesting, so in my prior life, I, you know, I just said I, I taught in public schools. I was a teacher of foreign languages and, lang and literature. So, you know, I, I have, you know, I was able to go and read the French and German translations for these passages in this article. And I find it fascinating. Uh, so if you look at the French and German translations, they all take some liberty with these passages. And they mm -hmm. translate the public as l'état the state mm -hmm. in French, or der mm -hmm. Stadt, uh, mm -hmm. the state in German. And um, I, I think if you're just reading this and kind of going with the flow of, oh, this is a dire situation, and then you come across this sentence, you're natural, I think from today's perspective, you naturally go with the sense that he's talking about the state. Because that's our framework today, right? I mean, the government has owned... Uh, public owned education. And we've all grown up, you know, most of us have grown up through the public education system. And, and we, I think, naturally go mm -hmm. that way. But yeah. I think he's opening up a larger discussion here. Yeah, although <clears throat> in 55, <clears throat> pardon me, um, he does, when here, when he talks about the public can facilitate this acquisition by establishing in every parish or district a, a little school, 
where children may be taught for a reward so moderate that even a common laborer may afford it, the master being partly but not wholly paid by the public, because if he was wholly or even principally, so it means less than 50%, it sounds like, paid by, by the public, he would soon learn to neglect his business. But here, this first parish, the parish school model, which, as you say, was operating in Scotland, is what he's speaking of. Okay, but this just is this just is just like one instantiation of a public initiative. Uh, yeah, yeah. You know, and if you stop there, it would seem that this is the only thing he has in mind, right? This is mm -hmm. his model. But you go one more sentence on. So he said, this is what Scotland does. Okay. Mm -hmm. Maybe we should look at it. And I've explained, you know, his reader would know this is not a fantastic solution. Endorsement, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, I don't think he has to hammer that home, right? He's saying these are the options available. They are both imperfect. You know, there's another option in the next sentence, but they're both imperfect, okay? Yeah. And so he says this, in, you know, the sentence structure is nice. He says, in Scotland, the establishment of such parish schools, okay? Next sentence, in England the establishment of charity schools has had an effect of the same kind. Okay. So near equitable, you know, he's saying then it's not so universal. Okay. Because the establishment is not so universal. Okay. So they are both imperfect. The Scottish system would be imperfect if you relied too much on public support. This is what he is saying here. You know, he's a restraint even as he identifies it. And the English system is imperfect because charity is, it's always a precarious thing and it's not everywhere. Although I do take qualms with his uh, comment here. I, I, it was quite extensive, but imperfect, of course. Um, you know, and if this is, this is really the response to this paragraph is interesting. I mean, I, I read those quotes up front where a lot of people have portrayed his prescription as an elaborate system but you start to see in this paragraph even as he entertains people subsidizing it whether it's through charity or through government he starts to restrain this idea so he says there's a whole bunch of words here i think i counted maybe 11 i can uh, restraints even as he discusses these would be little schools that would be a little more instructive um, instead of a Latin, you'd have uh, the elementary parts of geometry and mechanics, and perhaps this is the best as it can be, all right? Uh, and it goes on and on as he looks at the other things you might do. You might give small premiums. Small okay, little. so you're, you're going to 56. Yeah, yeah so I, Why don't you read that very short? It's a one-sentence paragraph. Yeah, and these, you know, so people focus on 55, which is the, the facilitation of uh, schools um, and 56, 57, unfortunately, as, as alternatives don't get much attention. So 56 is one sentence. The public can encourage the acquisition of those most essential parts of education by giving small premiums and little badges of distinction to the children of the common people who excel in them. So this that's was, that's really minor. That's sort of the mayor sort of having a day where 
the outstanding students are recognized prize winning term papers and stuff like that, I guess. Yeah. So, but he's talking about establishing a way to encourage people who may be resistant to the idea of education. This is positive reinforcement stuff, right? right? And people were doing this. They would have parades of the charity schools and they would all have their yellow ribbons and, and they, you know, they would have um, in the, in the churches, the, uh, they would recognize the high performers and parade them up front and they would read something to prove that they could read. And this was a big, a big affair. <laughs> yeah. And he's seen goodness in that. Yeah. Now, does he, uh, what's interesting here, so he's identified, there's the first two things. Does he say that one is more important than the other? Could encouragements, positive reinforcements alone push us in the right direction? You know, I, I find that interesting. Um, E.G. West, Edwin West, who's um, commented a lot on this, suggests that maybe he offers three separate independent solutions here to improve the state, this being one. Sketching out options to consider, yeah. not, not that each are endorsed. Yeah. And so I think it's problematic to not consider, to not move on to paragraph 56 and 57 and look at these other things he's talking about. Maybe this is, and, and I find evidence in this article, as well as the neighboring articles, that he really does favor the third of these, perhaps. Okay. The, the, the impose? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, yeah. so that's paragraph 57, which also is not long. Yeah. You, in fact, it looks like it also is one sentence. Can you read that one? Sure. The public can impose upon the whole body of the people the necessity of acquiring those most essential parts of education by obliging every man to undergo an examination or probation in them, in those essential parts, uh, before he can obtain the freedom in any corporation or be allowed to set up any trade, either in a village or town corporate. That is, you could say, a little bit out of character for Smith. Uh, I agree. To, yeah, to suggest that we should prohibit the natural flow of commerce, sort of a, uh, restrict people from doing business until they show that they have... Uh, master certain parts of education um or passing I, I, an exam yeah, yeah and that's the thing passing an exam he's not saying so, so what's important what he is not saying is perhaps as important as what he is saying he's not saying you have to go to school here no he's saying you need to it, we can uh, impose upon them sort of a need you know to, to, yeah. get this, to become educated in whatever means. Uh, that is a certainly a restriction on liberty. But if you compare it to alternatives, which is compulsory schooling, it's less. Or if you compare it to government running education, it is certainly less. Um, yeah. And yeah. <clears throat> that's okay, right. So what's interesting, so he is, it doesn't mean... The, the, who's the public again here, okay? The public is not necessarily even the government. It could be that your local um, uh, local I guess local authorities 
could choose to do this, right? That doesn't make necessarily. Well, that's a local government, isn't it? Or it could be societies themselves. Like, um, you know, we've got societies of businesses to the Your corporation. Um, So in other words, I guess you're saying it could be the rules of the corporation, although he says, or be allowed to set up any trade, either in a village or town in corporate. So, so, I mean, clearly, clearly this is, governmental governmental and and i think a restriction of liberty at least parts of what he's saying here there's no question but as you say i mean if you go back at the very last words of pay of paragraph 54 he's speaking of the necessity of acquiring those most essential parts of education he's not so in other words he's it's a it's a it's an option that would specify certain outputs passing an exam not the inputs yeah you know, and it also doesn't really say, you know, how strong of an imposition this would be, uh, what the standards would be. And, you yeah, know, how high the bar is. Yeah. Uh, you know, and what is what is different about this is also it allows a certain patience. This is, you know, maybe it's a hard touch, but you can also portray it as maybe a sort of a lighter touch. Um to get to where we're going. And, and it's this, you know, and we'll get into this. I think it's very important to recognize that in this article and the surrounding articles, Smith favors patient solutions to problems. And uh, perhaps this is one that would be implemented patchwork. Perhaps it is a low standard. Uh, I don't know that he is necessarily putting forward something that in his mind is something immediate, strict, impose, you know, really, really heavy handed here. Um, when I read how he mm-hmm. feels, so this is the thing, he really has a strong faith that problems will resolve themselves. And, and we'll look at, at those on this issue and in neighboring issues here. Of um, their own accord, he might of say. Their own accord, maybe with a little bit of encouragement, okay? <laughs> and that's the spirit of this. You know, of course, that little bit of encouragement is always the slippery slope of, of many a tyrant, right? Um, <laughs> um, All right, so there's a couple of paragraphs that close out the article. There's actually the next article on churches and religion, which which we might want to speak of. And then, of course, there's the paragraph that sums up on page 815. Um, so this is the final paragraph of the article. Yeah, so going a few sentences into this. Uh, though the state uh, was to derive uh, no advantage from the instruction of the inferior ranks of people, it would still deserve its attention that they should not be altogether uninstructed. Okay. However, the state, he says the state does derive some advantage. All right. So it derives no considerable advantage from their instruction. The more they are instructed, the less liable they are to the delusions of enthusiasm and superstition, which among ignorant nations frequently occasion the most dreadful disorders. So there's a lot here about social stability uh, being attained through some modicum of liberal education, um, making people more decent and orderly. Uh, you know, it's, uh, it's probably some truth to this, right? I mean, I, I don't think he's saying anything that, uh, too, pro- too profound here. Uh, in fact, I, I think people respond to his portrayal of the problems and his identification of the 
benefits of education as if somehow he had rung a bell that nobody had heard before. But you know, I've gone back and shown that what he is doing here is employing the language of sermons. This is exactly what was being discussed at the time by those advocating for widespread education through charity. I mean, it happened to that, again, that was the model. But there's nothing, anything more dramatic here than what they were saying. And um, these same benefits were being identified. I mean, if you're interested, I can go and quote some of these people, but um, these were the, the leaders of the day using the same language. Um, and so he's talking, to, he's, he's talking to a crowd that's heard this before. Um, uh, reminding them, you know, he's, you know, I, it's kind of uh, radical of him in a way because people of, I guess, his peers, people in the academic community, the intellect, so to say, were very suspicious of widespread education. There was the sense from Locke and Mandeville onward, uh, Joseph Priestley, many big figures who really felt this could be the downfall of Britain. Um, there would, you know, the, the, the poor with a little bit of education would rise up, we'd lose the natural order of things, we need, you know, people to do these jobs, they would be unwilling to do so, et cetera, et cetera. And um, so for him to sort of employ the language of the sermons is pretty, pretty bold. Mm-hmm. Um, and it aligns, okay. it aligns him with, with those people. So the, the article itself closes out, tell me if this is a proper description of your thinking about the article itself. It, the first three quarters essentially make the case against government involvement. He then turns to, well, we live in this world and we, and we should care and tend, attend to uh, education for all of society, for everyone. How do we do that? He does consider both government and private, as it were, uh, measures. He sketches out some. The the two that are really the significant um, governmental ones are the government uh, tax, local parish tax subsidies for partial subsidies for the local school. And then in 57, the imposing of an examination to kind of induce people to make sure they can do the three R's. Um, but he doesn't really say what exactly we should do by the end of the article. That's correct. He gives himself a, a, a numerous opportunities, and he keeps saying that we should attend to this, give the most serious okay. attention. Yeah, okay. So should we move forward? Um, do you want to talk about page 815 in the conclusion of the chapter? Yeah, I think, that's, I think that's the natural point to go here. Um, what happens is this chapter in book five of the wealth of nations goes through and tries to understand the different roles of government. Um, and it's a very large piece. And he looks at defense. He looks at justice, roads, infrastructure ideas, um, whether they should give special privileges to corporations, um, whether uh, we should uh, support the the sovereign and all of his trappings and, you know, sort of the dignity, the things that make a sovereign appear a sovereign. Yeah. You know? All the expenses of the. Yeah. 
the necessary expenses, as he puts it. Yeah, but he really, really goes into great detail in all those. And so after that, he, he concludes. He concludes it very succinctly in what's called the conclusion of the chapter. He addresses each of these topics with, uh, I think, just each one of them gets a paragraph. Um, and, and they follow a similar pattern. And this is how Smith interprets Smith. This is how he summarizes his lengthy article on education. This expense of the institutions for education and religious instruction is no doubt beneficial to the whole society and may therefore, because it's beneficial, right? May therefore without injustice be defrayed by the general contribution of the whole society. So by general contribution, there's enough context in his uh, writings. He means taxes. Um, so maybe defrayed by uh, a tax nationwide um, or perhaps local. Um, and so the justification would be there's benefits to society. We all benefit, so we, we should all chip in. Now, that sounds very contemporary. I mean, it certainly does. Now, there is a little bit of awkwardness to this first of the two sentences, um, you know, so it's hedged a little bit. He says, it may therefore be uh, provided for with taxes. Um, but he also says, without injustice. Um, that's an awkward phrase. It's a little bit different than saying it may be done justly. It kind of makes you wonder what he's doing. Uh, you know, for example, if you think back to the theory of moral sentiments, you know, you don't praise a person, a father for not beating his son, all right? Uh, he doesn't become the father of the year for not beating his son, but he certainly avoids an injustice for not beating his son. Um, and so uh, it's possible, I think he's saying it's possible to avoid injustices, but it, it's not a strong endorsement. And, and I say that because the next sentence pivots. And the next sentence reads this way. This expense, however, might perhaps with equal propriety and even with some advantage be defrayed altogether by those who receive the immediate benefit of such education and instruction or by the voluntary contribution of those who think they have occasion for either the one or the other. So it might be equally proper. It might even be better for those uh, that the payments for this comes from those who directly get the education. That would be a fee user system or through voluntary contribution. Now, what is voluntary contribution? Is he sort of just saying the same thing twice? Well, voluntary contribution had a real meaning at the time. It is strongly associated with um, payments for school school charity. Uh, this is uh, charity schooling. All right. Mm -hmm. So instead of um, endowed schools, these large, you know, historical institutions working off of a trust fund, charity schools were being done through regular subscription, weekly, monthly, whatever it may be, by the middle class. And they were, you know, they would be encouraged to do so at the parish. And there was, you know, just a lot of mm -hmm. momentum for this. And they felt, you know, and, and so and then they would be invested in it as well. So it, you'd see commentary that, you know, once somebody started 
paying subscriptions for a local school, you could see them suddenly get very interested in the quality of that school um, because they didn't want to throw their money away. Um, and that, in fact, that's one of the things that really distinguishes it in the, narr the narrative of the time really distinguishes charity schools from endowments is this active involvement of the people paying into them. Um, so this final sentence is, is vital and critical. You use this sentence as a lens. And so I want, I want to ask you to turn to that and just how you use this final sentence, this final words on the topic as a kind of lens for analyzing the secondary literature. Sure, sure. So I had a sense that maybe people were not aware or attending to this paragraph, um, but I had a small sample size, right? Uh, and so I felt I needed to do something really comprehensive here is I, I, you know, I spent a lot of time trying to find every comment on, on this, on Smith's roles of government education. Um, and over an extensive period of time, I've uh, amassed um, 191 examples uh, of publications that took a position on whether uh, on government or not government, right? Now of these 191, I found 54 that cited this passage in some capacity, which is great. So here, here's what I found. Um, so how many people actually believe Smith favored government? So I, I couldn't be too precise, but I, I was able to categorize people pretty confidently into that, into that category. Those who perpetuate this narrative of uh, Smith being an advocate of government here. 70, 79% of those 191 favor that, uh, that interpretation. I was actually shocked that 21% didn't because I, I, I hadn't initially found those 21%. You know, I really, really had to look to find those. Mm -hmm. And we've got 79% favoring government. Only 23% of those cited the passage in any way. Mm -hmm. In contrast, the 21% who have a heterodox interpretation will say, half of those people cited this passage in some capacity. Mm -hmm. um, so there's a disproportion here. Mm -hmm. And you can actually test for this disproportion using certain statistical tests. You know, so you know, I, I can confidently say that it's not random that you know, those who favor a state interpretation have not cited this passage. You have so many cases of, of state interpretation, you would think you'd have a lot of cases of people citing this, but um, actually you've got in that small bucket of heterodox interpretations, more people citing it. So, um, <laughs> but it gets a little bit worse actually when you dig a, a little deeper here. Mm -hmm. So I had 54 citing this and I stress in some capacity but the reality is a lot of people were truncating this passage and only citing the first part. Only 33 included the second part. And then worse is that they might have cited it. Almost none even recognized there was a heterodox sentiment. It's like they cited it, you know, as part of the whole passage, but they, they cite the whole paragraph for the drift of the first part. And it's like they don't even, even acknowledge that there was a second sentiment there. I see. Yeah, so it's it's almost by. And so act. you're talking people. You're talking. You're referring to people only of the pro-government bucket. Yeah, yeah. It's almost by accident that they included the the second part of this passage. <laughs> right. Now that's not the case if we look at 
sort of dissenting scholarship on this. The other bucket. The other bucket, yeah. So we've got, um, so they, they, they all include the second part and um, they all find some value in it. Yeah, well, it's, it's his concluding summary paragraph and it's one of two sentences and it's his final words on the topic. I should think we should uh, yeah. <laughs> to take it seriously and put some emphasis on it. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting. You look at, you know, I, I feel like I'm in good company by even talking about this. But here are the, the people who have a heterodox sentiment here. You have uh, E.G. West or Edwin West. He's you know, a very notable educational economist, um, remarkable figure. We've got uh, Milton Friedman. Okay, mm-hmm. I'll, I'll, I'll take his side anytime. Um, David, David Friedman, mm-hmm. uh, James Audison, fine mm-hmm. scholar, of course, Jeffrey Young, mm-hmm. Newt Hawkinson, mm-hmm. Robert Heilbronner, and Craig Smith. Okay. okay. Mm-hmm. So you wouldn't look at this list and say, who are these people? <laughs> right. <laughs> By no means. But what is interesting is they've all put forward, you know, uh, these are not substantive cases against a government interpretation, but they've all said something there and none of their comments have been addressed. They've been, yeah. you know, these I are mean, people, you cite them for other things, but they, they're not being addressed. Yeah. I mean, uh, it's not a, maybe a huge number of people, but Knud Hawkinson is a towering, towering figure and authority. James Audison is a very leading Smith scholar today. Craig Smith is at Glasgow, I think maybe in an Adam Smith chair, leading Smith scholar. So, yeah, <laughs> it is good company. Yeah, yeah. So uh, this is, I'll give you a quote. This is what Milton Friedman says, you know, being aware of this passage, right? He says, um, despite Smith's acceptance of the appropriateness of government establishment and maintenance of such institutions, he devotes most of the discussion to a scathing attack on the effects of governmental or church control of institutions of learning. Right? That's, that's great. It's yeah. like Milton being an independent reader. Oh, well, that's terrific, Scott. Um, I think we've covered a lot of rich material. Have we missed anything? Do you want to add anything? Um, yeah, no, I mean, I just encourage people you know, who, you know, I'll tell you this, you know, I think at one workshop, I think somebody insinuated this was a, a petty question to pursue. <laughs> and, and, you know, I, I take a little offense to that. And I think that, well, I think it's wrong to say that because, you know, what I see is that, you know, discussing Smith's views on the state is a huge field of research. Yes. And this is part of that. And in fact, it's an important part of that because if Smith sort of capitulates to the idea that we can't solve it ourselves, then, you know, this is a massive thing, education, right? So that would maybe open him up to sort of a willingness for other government involvement in a wide variety of things. And you see people saying that because he capitulated on government, he would entertain just about anything. And so, yeah, Smith is a huge figure in a in public discourse, uh, certainly in the history of thought. And it, it, warrants trying to get it right and it has ramifications for a lot of discussions i think yes yes excellent point well thanks very much for the wonderful conversation i appreciate it thank you for the opportunity